The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. Um, in your Bible, if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 13, we're going to finish off chapter 13, pick up where we left off last week. If you remember last week, we were talking about verses 8, 9, and 10. And that's where Paul has been on this journey, taking us through our responsibility, how we show genuine love. And he talked about how we do it as a community, how we treat each other, how we treat those who are outside our community, how we love our enemies. Um, he talked about how we respect the government. And last week we talked about how that we are to be neighborly in every way, the way we approach people. We are to see people who come across our path as divine appointments to share the love of God and to be gospel people. Uh, in other words, by gospel people, I mean people who are living out the gospel day in and day out. And so we were studying that last week, that neighborly aspect of it. Um, and now Paul wants to kind of give us a reason for all of that, if you will. Um, it's very important what we're going to look at today because it gives us the focus, it gives us the end goal for why we are to live the way that Paul has talked about living thus far. So in other words, when he says genuine love, okay, I'll live with genuine love, but why? Where, where, where are we going with this? Love my enemies? Why? Respect authority? Why? Be a neighbor? Why? Is it just about being a good person? Is it just about being like Christ? No. Paul says it's something beyond that. So in our text today, Paul's focused on drawing attention to this urgency that we should feel, this urgency of, of getting on with the business of living as Christians should be living. So he creates this urgency by reminding us that our genuine love has a purpose. And this purposeful living that he is calling us to has an end goal to it as well. How many of y'all would agree with me that we live in a very fast-paced culture? Have, have you ever noticed that it seems like everybody, everybody lives with a sense of urgency? I mean, day in and day out, no matter what the focus of that urgency may be, it may be something very small, it may be something very big, but we all live with a sense of urgency. It seems that today that time is probably one of the most precious commodities that we have. I mean, I mean, how many of us have gotten to the end of a day and thought, where in the world has this day gone? Or how many of us have gotten to the end of the day and, and thought to yourself as you rest your head on your pillow, I have been going all day long. And it's this sense of there is so much demanded of us that there is so little time to meet those demands. And would you agree that today there's more distractions than ever to pull us away from making the best use of that time? You know, you would think technology would help us to be better stewards of our time, to get more done faster. But what happens is it sends us on rabbit trails, right? Have you ever Googled something to find out just a recipe? And then all of a sudden you're finding out what some family on the other side of the country is doing because, you know, this thing led to that and that thing led to that and that thing led to that. And all of a sudden you're wondering, yeah, why does she wear that dress? You know, and you're like, what, how did I get to this? I was just looking up a recipe for cookies. And so what should have taken just a few moments ends up taking an hour because you get distracted by the very technology that's supposed to help you. How about Facebook? Oh yes, you know, I'm keeping up with people. I mean, I'm keeping in touch 
Yeah, you are. And they're wasting your time too, right? They're pulling you into all of that kind of stuff as well. So over and over and over again. Not only that, but think about fast food. Now, fast food's not even fast enough now. Now you can get on your app and you can have it ready when you get there. You can walk up past the line and get it. Now tell me, is anybody that important? You don't have time to stand in line for fast food, right? But sometimes it's just the culture that we create. I mean, uh, how many people would say, you know, I'm going to go to McDonald's and you have those friends who would be like, oh, McDonald's, that's, that's like gluten and, and, and all this other stuff involved in that. You know, it's bad for you. It's, it's disease infested. And you go, it's ready. Okay. That, that's why I'm going there. You know, I'll walk in, I want a cheeseburger. Here it is. It's ready. And a lot of times we do make decisions based on that, right? Whatever's most convenient, whatever is ready. Grocery shopping. Now you got these ways that you can um, have somebody shop for you. So when you get there, your grocery basket is ready to go. Or even curbside delivery in some places. Traveling. I mean, think about 50 years ago. Uh, people getting on a plane, what, that was only for the very wealthy to get on a plane and travel somewhere. Now it's like we can't get there fast enough. You know, how in the world, why are they delaying this? You know, I've got to be on the other side of the world 20 minutes ago. And so we live in this fast-paced society, so much so that we buy into it, even though maybe sometimes we don't need to. I was thinking about the other day, I made some instant oatmeal and then sat around for an hour. And I thought, you know, maybe I should have made the regular oatmeal and felt more productive. But how many of us, that's the kind of thing that we buy into. We want everything we want. We want it right now. We want it as fast as we can, not necessarily because we have to, but because we've bought into that whole culture. Or maybe it's just a part of human nature to live with a sense of urgency. We always feel like there's something that we need to do. Would you agree? There's always something that needs to get done, and we think about it all day long. And so when our focus, Paul is warning us, when our focus isn't on the kingdom of God, it's usually going to be on this world. And we still live with a sense of urgency even in this world. Even if we take our mind off of the kingdom of God, we begin to think, you know what, it's about this life, and I got to get to a good college and get a good college education. Why? So I can get the right job. Why? So I can meet the right person, live in the right neighborhood, have the best kids, retire at the right time with the right amount of money. So there's this sense of urgency that we work and we work and we work and we achieve and we achieve and we save and we save and we spend and we spend. And then we get to the end of our life and we look back and go, did I make the best use of, of this life? So there are all these distractions that are really pulling our eyes off of what Jesus modeled for us and what Paul is calling us to consider, that there's something bigger than ourselves to live for. And if you aren't intentionally aware of it, you will be distracted by this world and you will think this world deserves your attention. And you will live with a sense of urgency, either for the kingdom of God, or you'll live with a sense of urgency for this world. And so if we're not careful, this becomes our problem as Christians, we can very easily buy into this narrative, this mentality. And before long, we're putting off the truly important aspects of our life and of our faith. Have you ever been guilty of this attitude right here? I will live for myself today and I will live for God tomorrow. Now, none of us would say, oh yes, I said that out loud. But how many of us live out 
that truth day in and day out. Well, you know what? Today, I've got to get this done. I have this, this due date for this project. I've got this project at school, this project at work. I've got this relationship that really needs some work. I've got to pay this bill. I've got to have this thing. When I have this computer, this boat, that house, I'll be able to serve God way more effectively. So I will serve myself today and tomorrow I will use what I achieve for the kingdom of God. See, we've bought that lie that God actually needs us, that somehow the kingdom of God is better off by the things that we can provide for it. When we forgot what Paul started us off with, don't you realize that you are poor, blind, naked, hungry? That's the condition you were in spiritually before God found you. And he didn't bring you on because he really needs you on the team. He brought you on because he loves you, because you are his creation. And if we forget that very easily, we can begin to negotiate our love for this world and mesh it with our supposed love for God. Man, if I could just get this, if I could have that beach house, you know, I'd let missionaries stay in it every once in a while. I would, I would do it. Do, do you see now? We laugh at that, but don't we do that, don't we? Don't we think that way? Now, I'm not against beach houses at all. I'm not against them. I'm not against having a nice car, a nice, no, I'm not against those things. I'm not saying we should all give our money to the church and just live dirt poor. What I'm saying is we should not get distracted by the things of this world and trick ourselves into thinking that we are living for the kingdom of God when in actuality, we're living for an urgency of this world. And that's what Paul is warning us about here. Christian or not, well-intentioned or not, it is a part of human nature to live life with some kind of urgency. And so all of us have something in our lives that we tend to be very extremely urgent about. And it's just a part of our human nature. But our passage today is going to teach us that as Christians, as followers of Christ, we are first and foremost called to urgently live a life that pleases God. That that has to be our focus. Why? Because we are anticipating this day when there is a day called judgment day that's coming and we will stand before God and we will either hear, man, you made it in by the skin of your teeth, or you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Or you will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. And if we believe that what scripture teaches is true, then that day is coming. It is coming, whether we want it to or not. And guess what? Today, we are closer to it than we were yesterday. How far off is it? I have no idea. But we're constantly moving closer and closer to that day when we will give an account of exactly what we did with this salvation, with this redeemed life that God has given to us. And so all of us are thinking and planning our lives. And Paul's question is this, are you planning it with the kingdom of God in mind? Our urgency should not be directed towards getting more out of this life because the things of this life don't pr produce or provide for us joy or happiness or fulfillment. We always think that they will, don't we? We always think that if, we, if I just got to that level, if I just lived in that house, if I had that car, whatever it is for you, that thing that just kind of every time you see it, you're like, oh yeah, that, that would be, if I could have that, my life would be better. I would feel fulfilled. You see, it is in the gospel message 
that we find the true source of our joy. Would you agree? It is in the gospel message that we find the true source of our joy, listen to me, both here and now and in eternity. Because scripture tells us that Jesus came to give us a peace. He came to give us a joy here. He says that I come to, you may have life and life to its fullest. Not life off in the distance, but life right now. And so the way we live shows whether or not we really believe there's an eternity. Because if you really believe there's an eternity, if you really believe that there's life after this one, if you really believe that there is a God that we will give account to, as scripture says we will, then you will live with a different sense of urgency. You will live knowing that whatever tribulations I'm going through, these are short-lived because there's something bigger on the other side. No matter how much blessing you have, you live with, with that in, in a right perspective because you're like, you know what? It's not about this world and one day I'm gonna die and this is all going to someone else or this can be gone in an instant and I can't find my identity and my joy in these things. Why? Because they can never produce those things for me. There's a day coming where I'm gonna have to give an account for all that I have, all that I've done. So with that in mind, let's look again afresh and anew at what Paul says to us here. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. See, it would be easy for us to focus when we read this passage on the end times nature of it, right? We can look at that and go, oh, look at that. We have eschatology. And we can start talking about, well, when is Jesus going to come back? And maybe this passage gives us some insight. Or maybe we could take this passage and talk about this. And maybe we could predict the exact day that Jesus is coming. When is the world going to end? What's going to happen? Should we be looking for the world to end anytime soon? You know? And I always notice with, uh, when I was a youth minister, man, if you ever wanted to have high attendance, okay, with youth, you just talked on one of two subjects, the end times or sex. And if there's a third one that would do as well, are they going to have sex in end times? You know, and th that would draw the crowd for teenagers. I mean, they want to come, they want to hear about these things. The Bible talks about those things. I want to hear about that. So there's this natural tendency that we have to want to think about the end of the world. Matter of fact, so many people look at passages like this and they come to those conclusions, don't they? And we get this hysteria about it. How many of y'all remember the Mayan calendar? Ooh. <laughs> Right? Some guy uh, had created this entire system. And then all of a sudden, when he got to 2012, it ended. And so maybe this guy knew something. And, and when he stopped it right there, that's when the world is going to stop. And you remember the whole world was in a frenzy about the Mayan calendar. And you know one thing we learned from the Mayan calendar? And I take great comfort in this. Just because you don't finish something doesn't mean it's the end of the world. <laughs> How many of y'all can take that, put a magnet? That would be awesome, right? That's what we learned from the Mayans. Just because you don't finish something, it's not the end of the world. Or how about Harold Camping? 12 times in his life, he predicted the end of the world. He used a system of biblical numerology and he would put all these things together and create these different facets of how he could predict the time. And, and the latest one was May 21st, 2011. He, he said that that was exactly 7,000 years to the day from the biblical flood. Well, that day came and passed and nothing happened. 
And then he came out and said, I was wrong. I was off a little bit. It's October 21st, 2011. And that day, and, and do you see, it's so amazing how people will gravitate to these type of things. But you know, it, it also has a lot of fallout that you maybe not hear about all the time. People selling possessions and giving things away. People buying, running up credit cards because they think the end of the world. And some even more tragic where one lady shot her daughter and herself in, in, because she didn't want her daughter to have to go through the turbulence and turmoil that the end times would produce. I mean, I mean these kinds of things are funny and yet tragic at the same time. And what I want to say is when you read this passage, if your mind immediately goes to that, you've missed the heart of this passage. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is not suggesting that the return of Christ was near. What he's trying to do is put our living in context. He says the hour has come. Does that sound familiar at all? Those of you who've studied the scripture, who else said that very often? Jesus always was saying, hey, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then when it came time for his crucifixion, he said, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And so Jesus lived his life with this expectancy, this urgency. He knew that his life was going somewhere. And he knew that everything in his life was pointing towards a direction, a culmination, a, a end goal, if you will. And so when Paul says the hour has come, it reminds us that life doesn't happen haphazardly. Our life has intention to it. Our life has focus to it. Why? Because as we live our life, God is orchestrating the events of our life, even the negative, even the bad, even the mistakes we make when we willingly walk into darkness, when we willingly walk into sin, as we do, God still has intentionality and focus to our life that he's leading us to these points. And so there is direction and order to our lives. I love how one theologian said it. He says, faith is indeed nothing but living with the light of what is to come. Faith is indeed nothing but living with light or living in light of what is to come. So in other words, what he says is faith is not just believing in a person. Faith is not just believing something happened 2,000 years ago. Faith is literally believing that everything is moving in a direction and everything has intentionality to it and that you are a part of a process and your life is going somewhere and there is a destination to all of this. It is that kind of living that Paul is calling us to here, to awake from that sleep and to awaken from this lethargic, casual Christian life that is so tempting for us. A life of sleeping or sleepiness is to live a life without thinking or considering God in our everyday activities. That's what it means to live a life of sleepiness, to live a life sleepy, to awake from that slumber means to be aware that the kingdom of God is all around us. And it calls us to be a part of it. And so you remember back at family day, and I've repeated this every Sunday that I've been here. I believe there's a sense of urgency that God has created in my life and I've asked you to consider it as well and that is to share the gospel. Now I wonder how many of you have had the opportunity to share the gospel since we've talked about that. I've had two opportunities to really share the gospel. Now obviously 
my life's a little bit different than yours and that I share the gospel probably week after week. But I'm talking about in an encounter with somebody that I don't necessarily know. That's what I'm using. And so I had these two opportunities uh, this past week to share the gospel. And I wonder, have you been thinking about that as the week has gone on? I'm gonna keep reminding you of that. God has put you in specific places and he's bringing people across your path so that you can be a mediator for them, so that you can create a sense of context for them. They are wandering around, many of them aimlessly. Many of them think their life has complete direction, but they haven't even asked themselves that question. That question of one, one of the people I was talking to, they were, they were talking about this sense of urgency, and I'm going to not go with the direction of our conversation because it would take a while, but I'm going to kind of recreate it. And that is, he was saying, oh, I got to get to this certain school. And I was like, why? Well, because this is the job that I want to have. Why do you want that job? Well, because that's what I really want to do with my life. Why? Because I have a passion for that. What are you going to do when you get there? Well, I'm going to work really hard to do what? I'm going to try and excel at that. Why? Well, because I want to get to the top of that field. And then what are you going to do? And, and ultimately what happened was I just kind of led him to the point of there really isn't an end goal. There, there's nowhere, because when you get here, you're going to want that. And then when you get here, you're going to want that. And then when you get here, then you're going to go back and try and make up for what you didn't do back here. And then all of a sudden you're dead. And you never achieved anything. You thought you were living life with a purpose, with direction, but you were actually living very aimlessly with a little bit of direction. You were just saying, that's what I want to do with my life. Why? Because I like it. Okay, what if two years from now, you don't like that anymore? Then think about that. Well, that's all the degree you got. You know, you put four years, five years, six, seven, eight, some of us 20 years into that thing. What if you wake up one day and that thing doesn't fulfill you? That thing doesn't deliver what you think it's going to deliver. Then what? You see, we don't ask those questions in the beginning because we're living in those moments. Notice how Paul speaks of salvation as something in the future here. Did you notice that? Look at it again. He says here, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is, what does he say? nearer to us than when we what? That's interesting. He talks about salvation as if it hasn't happened yet. He talks about salvation as if it's off in the future. But then he clarifies that he's talking to people who already believe. It's nearer to you now than when you first believed. What is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about what the book of Romans is, is largely about as explaining our salvation. And notice that so many times salvation is talked about in these different tenses. We talked about that in here before. If you go to Ephesians 2.8, it talks about salvation as something that happened in the past. You go to 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul talks about something that happens right now. It's in the present. We are saved. And then we have this passage and then passages in, in 1 Corinthians 5.9. And uh, we have these passages that talk about these things that happen in the future. That salvation is something that is yet to come. And of course, what is he talking about here? He's talking about those different aspects of it. Because we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. So we have been saved, and that's what was purchased for us. We are justified. We, we didn't do anything to it. We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't do anything to make it, to seize it. It was the work of God. 
We were justified because of what Christ did and because of God adopting us, electing us into his family. But then once that happened, we began this process of becoming more and more like Christ. So we are being saved from that practice of sin. We were saved from the penalty of sin once and for all, and that was it, and we're promised eternity. But then we go into sanctification, and we are being saved from that practice of sin. We are waging war with that sin that still exists, those thought processes, those temptations that we keep giving into. We wage war against that through our process. But there is a day when we will be saved. We will be glorified. We will be saved from the very presence of sin. There will be no more temptation. We will be with our maker. We will be with Christ for eternity without any more temptation. We will be saved. And that is the part that Paul is talking about right there. Paul is thinking of this future glorification. When all of a sudden we don't have to try really hard to have genuine love. It's not a difficult thing to love our enemies because we won't have any enemies. It won't be difficult to live under our authority because we'll have the most perfect authority there possibly is. So right now it's difficult, but we live with this expectancy, this expectancy, this urgency that God is going to make things right again. And that is the glorification. That is the future. That is the end goal. So Paul is saying that it's nearer to us than the time when we first believe. There, there is the thought of this eager expectation, the thought that the fullness of all that salvation means, everything that it entails is still yet to come. So this is why Paul has been speaking of this genuine love that we should be living in. You see, the need to love is so important. And not only is it just an important ideal or aspect of our life, I would say that it's very important when we consider the age, this time period that we live in. There is no time today for, for petty games, for getting our feelings hurt, for harboring resentment, for hating our enemies. That's what Paul's been trying to teach us. There's no time for that. There's no time for us to be selfish, to be self-centered. Why? Because you're going to miss out. Life is too short and the kingdom of God too big for us to be selfish. So the world lives as though human history were destined to continue forever. Would you agree with that? We live that way. We live as if there's never going to be an end to human history. No matter how much people talk about it, no matter how much we talk about global warming or, or, or nuclear war, we still keep living as if none of that's a reality. We may talk about it, but we keep living as human history will keep going forever and ever. But the truth, the truth is that every day brings us closer to that final day. When all that we have hoped for in Christ finally becomes a reality, then we will see that long-awaited kingdom unveiled fully, unveiled completely. And because of our fallen perspective, because of our depravity, because of our struggle and temptation with sin that we always have to be aware of, the things of this world easily become more pressing and more urgent for us than the kingdom of God. And so I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it is so difficult to keep the right perspective. It's so easy for us to take our eyes off of the kingdom of God and put our eyes on the riches and the pleasures of this world. And the word Paul uses here is very significant. It is the word keros, 
which is translated hour or time. And it refers to putting someone in a specific situation and forcing them to make a decision. How many of y'all would love to do that with some people in your life, right? That's what the word literally means. When he says the time has come, he's saying, I'm putting you in a specific situation and I'm forcing you to make a decision. What is your life gonna be about? What are you gonna do? I mean, do you hear the urgency in Paul's voice? I mean, you've accepted this. You're even being persecuted for your belief in this. And yet your passion for this world is still your focus. What are you doing? Decide today. What are you going to be a part of? One theologian puts it this way. Know the critical situation in your life. Know that it demands a decision and what decision. Train yourself to recognize as such the decisive point in your life and to act accordingly. So in other words, he's walking us through this process. Know in the critical situations of your life, know that it demands you make a decision. You have to make a decision. And, it and, it, and it's necessary that you make a certain decision. So you need to train yourself to recognize these types of situations, these decisive points in your life, and you act accordingly. And so this word keros here should be understood as the decisive moment, the specific time in which we as Christians are to make a decision with this urgency and with haste to faithfully follow Christ, leaving everything else behind. You say, well, I still struggle with this. Yes, you do. But today, make that decision to faithfully follow Christ. What if I mess up tomorrow? Why are you worried about tomorrow? Let's worry about today. Let's focus on where we are. What are you going to do today? And I tell people oftentimes that are really going through tough struggles in life, that this is my mentality. When I walk through those times, you know, how many of y'all believe that the scripture teaches us and that we should embrace that Jesus is our portion forever and that Jesus is enough for us today? But you know, sometimes in my life, I have to break it down even further than that. And I have to say, as I'm struggling, maybe, maybe struggle with sin or maybe struggle with depression or whatever it may be in my life, what I say is, is Jesus enough until I get to lunchtime? Can I make it the next three hours? Is Jesus enough for the next three hours? And you know what? He's enough. He's strong enough. He, he, he's worthy of this. I'm gonna, I got these three hours. And then you know what? I have to reevaluate again at lunchtime. And I, can I make it to dinner? Is Jesus enough until dinner? And there are those times where we're going to walk very slowly, ploddingly, very hesitantly. Why? Because we are weighted down with the situation, with difficult circumstances, and it's difficult to even keep our bearings. That's when we have to make this even a smaller commitment that goes throughout the day. I've got to keep going. I've got to keep reminding myself. I have to keep focusing on the Spirit of God in my life. And that is what Paul is calling us to understand. We have to live with that sense of orientation, that sense of urgency. Uh, Kyle, as we were talking about this this past week, um, he gave what I thought was a great illustration of that. And he said, you know, it's kind of like him and Heather are looking to adopt a child. And he says, you know, we've done all the work. We've done the home study. We've filled out the pages and pages and pages of paperwork. We have all the things that have done where they've gone back and studied us and done all the background checks and everything. He said, we've even had this point where we've already started creating a room and fixing it up. And we have no idea what the gender of the child is going to be. And he said, it's a little bit different than 
just having a child because at least then you have a window of you know when this is going to happen, right? But he says, we have no idea. It could be next week or it could be two years from now. He says, but me and Heather, every decision we make now, we have in the back of our minds, but there's a day coming that everything's going to change. You know what? When I take this job, I have to think about, you know, but we're going to have a life that we're gonna have to take care of, that we're gonna have to feed, that we're gonna have to invest into. And so every decision they make, whether it's for their career or whether it's for their savings or their future or where they're going to live, they're constantly thinking about something that they have no idea when and if it's even gonna happen, but it consumes their minds in every decision that they make. That's what Paul is calling us to. When is Christ coming back? Have no idea. But you know what? He's coming back and I have to live in that reality and I have to make decisions today based on that reality. Do you see this? Look at what he says in verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So so our salvation, that became a very decisive moment for us, right? It became a very decisive moment. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He's saying that it is the time where we commit to living according to God's economy and we quit living according to the world's economy. God's value standards and system are very different than this world's value system. And Paul says that we have to make a decision to say, you know what? Time is short. It's almost like the picture that he creates for us there is a day. It's almost like you have these pivotal moments and you only have so much time in a day, right? We've talked about that, how you get to the end of the day and you say, where has this day? Yeah. Or I have been literally running all Yeah, and so what Paul is saying is, understand that your Christian walk is like a day. You've exited out of the night. You're living in the day. But there is an evening that's coming. There is a closure to that. And every day you're inching closer and closer to that. You ever sense that in the morning you have a lot to do to get ready for something? And in the morning you're like, oh yeah, I got this, man, I got it. I think I said I have another cup of coffee. And then as it gets closer to lunch, you're like, "Mm, I gotta tighten up a little bit here. Still got a few things to do. And then as it gets closer, you're like, I'm running out of time. I gotta get on this. I should have not wasted this early part of my day. How many of y'all have ever lived like that? How many of you love like that every day of your life? Yes, that's me. I got my hand up, not as an illustration. Well, I guess I am. I'm the illustration of that, okay? That's the way I live my life. I live by deadlines. If you don't give me a deadline, never get done, okay? I'm probably one of the only people that has has gotten two degrees that they give you seven years to finish, that you can finish in three, but they give you seven years to finish, and I've taken seven years every time. Why? Because there's no deadlines until the end. They always tell you, well, impose your own deadlines. Don't work. I know they're not real. Okay? You have to trick me. You have to make me think it's real or I'm not going to do it because I think I've got tomorrow. I've got next month. I've got next year. Right? How many of us buy into that and that becomes our mentality? I've got next year to live for Christ. I've got next year to go on a mission trip. I've got next year to share my faith. Right now, I need to focus on this relationship, this degree, this job. I don't want to do anything to compromise that. So if I share the gospel at work, what happens if that keeps me from moving up the ladder? What happens if that causes me to lose my job? The night is far gone. 
What economy are you living by? You see, when we live by God's economy, it changes our value system. And here Paul talks in terms of casting off or put off and to put on something. And these terms are often used in the context of clothing. Okay, so you put off a wardrobe and you would put on a wardrobe. And and these are metaphors that Paul loves to use. You go through Ephesians, he talks about putting off and putting on. Put off this way of life, put on this way of life. Put off this way of talking, put on this way of talking. Put off this way of thinking, put on this way of thinking. So it's this idea of disrobing and re-robing, okay? So that's a, a picture that he loves. It's an analogy that he uses over and over and over again. Paul also loves the imagery of a soul and the armor that they wore. Over and over again, he'll talk about that picture of our, of our armor and that we are in a war, that we are in a battle. And so we tend to think of Ephesians 6 when we think of that, but notice that he uses that in many of his other letters, that same imagery. And we always think of those pieces of armor that he tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. But know that Paul doesn't give that same picture to every one of those pieces in his other letters. Sometimes it's something different. So Paul's not concerned with the helmet always is the helmet of salvation or the breastplate is always the breastplate of righteousness or whatever it may be. He is focused on the fact that you need to understand that you are in a war, but it's a spiritual war and you better make sure that you go to that war with the right weapons. And the weapons are spiritual. And that's what Paul wants us to focus in on. It's also very interesting here that Paul speaks of putting off the works of darkness. Look at what he says. You put off those works of darkness and what do you replace it with? What does it say there? Does it say you put on works of light? Yeah. It's interesting that you quit working for darkness, but you don't go thinking, I'm gonna start doing works of righteousness because what? Paul wants you to know your works don't save you. Your works get you nowhere. The work, the product, the the progression that you make in your spiritual life will be because of the Holy Spirit, not because of you. It's not gonna be because of your determination. It's not gonna be because you're so strong that you're better than anyone else, that you're more faithful than anyone else. It's gonna be because you learn to yield to the Spirit of God and you allow the Spirit of God to work in you. That's how you have progress in your spiritual life. So he tells us to put off those works of darkness. Look what he says. Cast off the works of darkness and put on, not the works of light, but the armor of light, the armor of light. That's what we should put on. So Paul understood this clearly as he's trying to convey this same truth to his readers. Life is a battle. Darkness conceals, light reveals, evil flourishes in darkness because we assume that in the cloak of darkness, we can't be seen. See, uh, one, one, one author says it this way, the desire for darkness is itself an admission of the wrongness of the act. The desire to do something in private is your blatant admission that what you're doing is wrong. Why? Because you don't want anyone else to see it. We do that, right? I mean, I know I do. Maybe y'all are better than I am. I don't see a lot of heads going, yeah, that's me. Like, no, that's my, you're on your own. Turn the lights off and I might nod my head. (laughs) But you know, what's interesting. You go back to the Levitical law. When you look at the laws of Leviticus, Okay, for example, if someone was caught stealing from someone, the punishment was different 
if they stole at night versus if they stole in broad daylight. Matter of fact, it was worse. If you stole at night, your punishment was worse than stealing in the daytime. Can anybody guess why that would be? I'm gonna tell you. Because if you went and stole at night, here's the way they thought of it. You cared what people thought of you. You didn't want them to see, but you knew God saw you. At least if you stole in broad daylight, you didn't care what people thought or God thought. You put them on the same plane. But if you robbed someone at night, you knew God saw you, but you didn't want people to see you. Do you see the difference in those two? So literally you are living in disregard to God, but you didn't want anyone else to know. That's what it means to live in that darkness, thinking that somehow what we do is unseen. Somehow we get away with these things and we don't, we never do. How is your character? You know what I'm asking, right? Because your, your character is not what you show to people. It's who you are when there's no one there to see it. What's your character like when you're not in front of people, when you don't have a Bible open, when you're not in the realm where you have to talk the Christianese language? What's your language like at work versus at church or your small group or at school? What's your relationship like with your spouse, with your girlfriend, boyfriend? See, our character is about becoming a whole person and we live for the glory of one and that is God. And so if we struggle in our marriage, we need to talk about it. I mean, I've talked about it many times here. I don't have a perfect marriage. Now, I know most of you do. <laughs> Nervous laughter. Uh, but, you know, isn't this a place where we should be able to, I mean, as the people of God come and go, we don't have it together. We make mistakes every day. We fall into these same things over and over again. I am so guilty of this in so many regards. But you know the thing that we can't ever give up? Fighting. Fighting to turn away from that mentality. How do we fight that? We use the armor of light. Look at how he continues that, verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Again, he's using that idea of before God and men, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Now, this may seem like an odd verse at first, but let's take a closer look at what Paul's continuing to develop here. He uses this term walking. So Paul often uses this representation. This is another thing he loves. He loves the armor. He loves that idea of daytime and nighttime, putting off, putting on. And he loves this idea of walking. And so I think the picture that he wants to create is that Christianity, following after Christ is not a sprint. It is a very slow, it's not even a marathon because in a marathon, you attempt to run sometimes, right? Christianity literally is walking in the light. And that picture is, it's steady, slow progression, but progression nonetheless. So we walk in the daytime. And then what Paul does is he contrasts that with three different pairs of characteristics of what it looks like for those who walk in the darkness. 
And he uses the, the orgies and drunkenness is the first one. Sexual immorality and sensuality is the second one. And then quarreling and jealousy is the third one. Now, all of them are arranged in three pairs. And each pair, the two things that he mentions are very similar to the other. Let's look at each of them. The first one, he says, not in orgies and drunkenness. Now, in the original language, and it carries over here in our English language, it's plural. Notice that, okay? It's a picture of abusing strong drink, and it's a picture of abusing sexual intimacy, all right? The next thing he says is sexual immorality and sensuality. Again, he uses plural terms here. Sensuality is, is this idea of this unrestrained lust, and that leads to our sexual immorality. And then the third one is interesting because he puts it in the singular. So what I want to say is the first one, he has many ideas of what this would look like. Sexual immorality, sensuality. What does that mean? It means a lot of things. That's why he uses the plural. But here he says quarreling and jealousy. These are more reflective of our attitudes within our spirit. Whereas those first two groups are something that carries on out here and with other people. It's something that we are doing and acting on, yet these other two are something that happens within our hearts. So in other words, we quarrel. Why? Because we are conflicted inside of us. We think that we are right, and now we need to show that we are right. But it starts deep within us. This idea of jealousy is something that happens in us. We can hide those things within us. So both are centered on the selfish attitude of being right or getting what I want. Now, isn't it interesting that with the first couple of characteristics that Paul gives to us, most people would say, don't struggle with those. I don't have a problem with them. But the last two, Paul brings you to that point of, oh. So he starts with this one and you're like, oh, I'm holier than thou. I got that one checked off. I don't really struggle with that one. Mm, not that one so much. Can we pass up that last couple? Quarreling and jealousy. And see, darkness is closer to us than any of us would like to admit. That's what Paul wants to draw us to. We think of, of, of darkness as this great sexual immorality, which still is closer to us than we would like to admit. But definitely what Paul wants us to understand is no matter where you are in your walk, if this is a life that you're coming out of and this is still a temptation, or this is where you're coming out of and this is still a temptation, the one thing that we all have to be aware of is darkness is closer than we would like to admit. And all of these are considered to be acts of darkness. Oh, but how we put labels on them and how we like to separate them out. And unfortunately, the church is considerably more tolerant towards that last pair than Paul is. Paul puts jealousy and quarreling right there with orgies and drunkenness, no difference. But we don't really like that. I've seen people taken out of leadership positions, removed from leadership positions in churches because of being involved with some of those things. But rarely do you see somebody removed from a position because of jealousy or quarreling are always wanting to be right. Hmm, what would church be like if we had higher demands of just these things that we are like these hot topic issues? No, what if we really care about the kind of character that's leading us? I've seen many people get torn down because of a mistake that they make sexually or drunkenness, addiction that they have. 
But you know what Paul wants us to realize? Is that if you look at those people and you go, glad I ain't them, Paul says, jealousy, quarreling, same thing. Are you living for this world and according to the economy of this world? Or are you living according to God's economy? Because on God's economy, no difference. All six of these vices stem from selfishness or self-will. They're all extensions of a self-will that's only looking out for itself, only looking out for its own pleasure. And as one commentator puts it, all these practices constitute a failure in love, which Paul's already told us in verse 10, works no harm to the neighbor. Do you see that? And every single one of those, you cause harm to your neighbor when you engage in them. Orgies and drunkenness. Well, why would Paul mention this? Well, there's a little bit of cultural context to it, I think that is helpful. And that is this. Um, there was a celebration that they had in Rome. It was called Saturnalia. And Saturnalia was the most popular holiday that they had in Rome. It happened around December 17th to December 23rd. Now, they would have these big festivals and they would parade through the streets and they would throw out trinkets to people. Sound familiar? <laughs> they would actually ordain a king. It was a fake king and he would preside over the ceremonies of that time, which would last over a week. Okay? And in this, there would be open drunkenness and they would relax all of the laws of Rome during this time. And there were gifts that were given to each other and there were pleasantries exchanged. And it got to the point that it got so out of control that literally they would have orgies in the streets and open drunkenness. Things that people usually only would do at night during Saturnalia, they would do out in public. So I don't think it's by accident that Paul mentions this. He's not just giving us a list of what he thinks is really bad sins. I think we have to keep in context, who is this guy talking to, right? Who is he talking to? Let's not forget who he addresses it to. Go all the way back to the beginning of, uh, of Romans. All in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. See, it's funny how much we idolize the early church and we're very quick to forget that these are not people who came from the upper echelons of society. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, after listing a pile of deplorable sins, Paul says to the people that he's writing to, that is what some of you were. So it was this gospel that took up and transformed so many that before that were the scums of society. And Paul is mindful of this and he warns them against, listen to me, a relapse of what they used to be before Christ. Why? Because darkness is always closer to you than you think it is. And if you're not aware of it, you're not aware of the battle that you're in. And if you're not aware of the battle you're in, you will be distracted, you will be defeated, and you will live a meaningless existence throughout this life, never thinking about what is to come. Our prayer should be, Lord, how could you take those people out of Rome, out of that culture and change them and save them and justify them and sanctify them and use them to promote your kingdom throughout the world, that should prompt us to say, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Do it here. Do it with us. 
Lord, we realize that we are those deplorable people, that we are the ones who struggle with every one of those sins that are listed there. We struggle in our lives and in our hearts because we are so distracted by the pleasures and temptations of this world. Lord, help us to focus on you through the power of your spirit. Help us to yield to you. Lord, do it again. However you use those people and you furthered your kingdom in ways we can't imagine, Lord, why can't you do it again? Lord, take those people that we see at Mardi Gras and create some evangelists and pull out some preachers and pull out some Sunday school leaders. Lord, help me when I walk through the place and I'm so quick to judge people. Lord, help me instead see that could be my child's Sunday school teacher. Why? Because no one is too far for the gospel. No one is too far gone for the salvation of God. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So don't put on good works. What does he say? Put on Christ. You see, it's not an external, it is an internal transformation that begins to work its way out to the external. So putting on Christ is this strong picture that Paul gives to us. Again, we put off those works of darkness, we put on Christ. And it means more than just put on the character of Christ. It literally means let Christ Jesus himself be that light of armor that you wear. Paul knows how our flesh so easily leads us into sin. And so he instructs us to make no provision for these lower desires. One commentator says it this way, put into very simple English, Paul is saying, do not plan for sin, give it no welcome, offer it no opportunity, kick the sin of your, off your doorstep and you won't have it in your house. This is exactly what happened to Augustine. Probably the most famous conversion surrounded are associated with this passage right here that we're studying. See, Augustine was a highly intellectual person. He found it completely impossible to break away from his sexual sins. But one day he heard a child at play saying, tolo lege, tolo lege, which means take up and read, take up and read. He opened up his Bible, it fell open to Romans chapter 13. His eyes fell upon this passage. And Augustine said this, and now I had no wish to read more, nor was there need. At once a light of serenity flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Augustine, who had been struggling with his faith, who had lived according to the flesh for so many years, who had, who had not yet even having put his faith in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. He was compelled by what these verses said. He felt the urgency behind living a life of Christ, a life of meaning and destination. And Augustine lived the rest of his life believing in the urgency of the gospel. You see, it's important for us to understand that this new life in Christ stands in stark opposition to that old life that is controlled by our thoughts and our desires and our, compa our, our passions. So put on Christ requires us to put off those old rags that used to cover us. We will still struggle with sin, yes, until the day we're called home or until Christ returns and makes all things new. But but we must fight. We must fight to deny those old desires any opportunity of expressing themselves in our life. We are not even to consider the possibility of allowing them to fulfill their evil intentions through us. Literally, it means put into very simple English. Paul is saying, do not plan for sin. Give it no welcome. Offer it no opportunity. Kick the sin off your doorstep and you will not have it in your house. That's a fight, my friends. 
That's what he's calling us to. We are all waiting for the fulfillment of something, are we not? Look at Tom Brady, who's won so many Super Bowls. In an interview, what does he say? I feel unfulfilled. You talk to actors and actresses who are at the height of their careers, something's missing. You talk to billionaires, I'm still not happy. You talk to your neighbors who have so much, I'm depressed. You look at your own life and there is that unfulfillment. You see, the problem is there's only one thing that really satisfies. When our lives change, our focus should change as well. We are all living for something and we are all anticipating something that causes us to live in urgency. The question is this, what is that? that you're living for? What is it that you're living for in urgency? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word to convict our hearts. And Lord, even though we must be honest with ourselves as we read through this passage, we just think, that's probably not things I struggle with the most. Lord, ultimately, when it comes down to the fact that this is our thoughts and our desires, Sometimes not always our actions. Lord, we're guilty of every one. Lord, we stand guilty because we are sinners in need of grace. But Lord, we do believe that with the power of your spirit, the indwelling of your spirit, that we can defeat the sin, the indwelling sin that we struggle with through this process of sanctification. Lord, we know that this fight is not in vain because whether we completely defeat these sins or whether it's an ongoing battle, we know we are moving towards a destination where you will make all things new and you will remove those temptations and we will see you and we will know in full just as we have been fully known and we will truly experience the fulfillment of our salvation. Lord, with that in mind, we carry on and wage the war today. Lord, not just our own war focused on ourselves because that would be spiritual selfishness. We wage war as a community to bear one another's burdens, to love each other. And Lord, we live as a community to affect the people still outside. Lord, when we see people who we would be quick to judge, Lord, quicken our hearts to say, they are not beyond the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wasn't beyond it. They can't be beyond it. Lord, may we always live with the hope of the gospel. That's what you've called us to. That's what Paul reminds us of. And that's what we wanna embrace as your people. Lord, convict the hearts of your people. Help us to move out of this place, to remember our requirement, our command to share the gospel to allow your spirit to work through us. Lord, as we go out of this place singing today with prayerful hearts, I pray that all of us would do our right response to your word and do some self-reflection today. And Lord, may you have your way with each one of us and may you receive the honor and glory that is due to you from our lives. And we ask this in the power and the name of Christ.